On today's episode, I interviewed Lauren Zayax, who is a concussion specialist. So today's episode was all about concussions. We started off with just generally what is a concussion. We talked about the physiology behind a concussion, some common ways to get concussions, signs and symptoms for concussions, kind of how the general return to sport, return to performances after those concussions. We talked about the importance of taking concussions seriously and the reasons why to do that. Uh, we talked about the there's different lasting symptoms and different types of concussions that can kind of go on for longer, which is something that Lauren um, kind of specializes in a little bit more. So we talked about ways to treat that. And then we talked about also that if you do have some sort of reason to uh, or some sort of issue from a concussion that she suggests there's ways to fix these things. So you shouldn't be living with that. Um, there should You should seek someone out that should um, be able to help you with that. So again, there's a lot of really good points in this episode all about concussions. I really recommend you listening to it. So here it is. Welcome to No Weak Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date evidence-based content and knowledge through life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, coaches, parents of athletes, or any active person looking to improve their fitness or athletic ability. So please have a listen and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to No Week Links. I am Patrick Wood, your host, and today I have on Lauren Zayax, who is a concu- who is a concussion specialist. And so today, obviously, we're gonna our main topic is gonna be concussions. So uh, just getting into it a little bit, if uh, Lauren, thanks for being on. If you would just want to kind of introduce yourself, tell us uh, kind of your background, how you got into concussions and uh, education and current position. Yeah. So thanks for having me on here. Um, I got into treating concussions because I had a traumatic brain injury about six years ago and was really unhappy with the care that I received. Um, And so I ended up meeting a mentor of mine who identified my vision issues and the reason why I was struggling so much at work. And then after she fixed me, I forced her to train me and become my friend. And so I, uh, I worked in sports for a long time and I actually was afraid of the concussions to be perfectly honest and would turf them off to the head athletic trainer. So it's really funny that, that this is what I do now. Um, I went to Northeastern University, which is in Boston for both my athletic training degree. And then I stayed there for my clinical doctorate in physical therapy. And then most of my concussion training has been independent. So different courses, experience, reading, a lot of reading, um, things like that. And I own an educational website called Phoenix, like the bird, concussionrecovery.com. And that's the main mission is to close the education gap. So unfortunately, in the world of concussion, you're at the mercy of um, how educated your healthcare provider is still for right now. And so we want to make sure that patients have an easy, accessible source so that they know what to ask their providers. And if the providers don't know, that's okay. They can just read and educate themselves and then treat their patients properly. Mm, good. And then maybe just go over a little bit kind of uh, what you do at your job or your current yeah, position. Yeah, so... Um, I specialize in people who are more than three weeks out. So we know in in the world of sports-related concussion, which is unfortunately where all the money and research goes, um, we know that 90% of them get better in less than three weeks. But then when you look at the data, 30 plus percent of people will take more than three weeks to get better. So, I mean, math isn't my strongest suit, but but 90% and 30% don't equal 100, right? So that just means we don't really know. Um, Mm -hmm. So I really love the ones who are further out. I, I enjoy the ones who are unfortunately three to six months out 
from their injury, um, just because you can make such a difference in their life uh, and you can really change their whole perspective on the medical system. I do vision therapy. So people with concussions will have trouble with reading, they'll have headaches on the computer, more fatigue at the end of the day. In the athletic world, maybe their batting average drops, right? Because they can't track the ball properly and they don't have the depth perception that they used to have. And then I do vestibular rehabilitation therapy, um, which is dizziness, balance, motion and tolerance, things like that. And then I have a team. So I have another provider who does the craniosacral therapy and the head, uh, the neck injuries. And they also treat the dysautonomia, which is um, the deregulation of your nervous system after a concussion. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And we'll get, in, we'll get into all those topics for sure later on. Um, but I guess just to, to kind of start off, room pretty, pretty simple. Well, not simple, but could, could you just kind of define what a concussion is and then go over uh, phys- physiologically what it is and then common ways maybe to kind of get that? Yeah, so a concussion is not picked up on any type of imaging that we currently have in the mainstream. There's some evidence that spec scans or DTI scans can pick up a concussion, but go ahead and pay $10,000 for mediocrely supported studies, right? So, so for the most part, you're not going to have any findings on a CT or an MRI. And so it's a a chemical cascade that happens inside of your brain. So basically the way that our brain works is on currency. And so um, when you have a concussion, that currency will sort of leak out and that causes synaptic interruption. So basically it's like you're playing a game of telephone and you're telling your friend the same story and then you get further down the telephone line and the message gets mixed up, right? So that's kind of what happens in a concussion. Um, And so they believe that this chemical cascade actually lasts a long time, but they don't know how long. There's been some rat models that have shown decreased, um, I don't know how to, it's it's hard hard to explain it in patient-friendly language sometimes, but basically they'll have issues and disruptions in the brain for four to six weeks after a concussion. But the secret in healthcare is that rat models don't really correlate to human models all that much and so who who knows really and and so what i tell patients is we know the same about the depths of the ocean as we do about the human brain we know how to functionally see these deficits we know now how to categorize your symptoms we have good ideas about why these things are happening to you but we really don't know how long it lasts if these problems last longer than when you're symptomatic um and and so it's a really loaded question so i'm sorry for the roundabout answer no that's good yeah. And, and then, then as far as how you could get a concussion, I think that was your second question. Okay. Sometimes yep. my memory fails me. Um, so you don't have to hit your head. So my big pieces that I always like to educate on is that a loss of consciousness has no predictive value. So people come into the clinic all the time. I just had one a few days ago, but I didn't even lose consciousness. So I have no idea how I got a concussion. And so this is a big wow moment for patients, especially loss of consciousness no longer really means anything at all, unless it's a prolonged loss of consciousness, right? You're out for five minutes. That's a different story. So only 10% of all concussions are going to include a loss of consciousness and it has no predictive value and you do not need to hit your head to have a concussion. So often people in car accidents, for instance, they have that big whiplash injury, right? But I didn't even hit my head on the steering wheel. I don't understand why my brain doesn't work as well. And it's because your brain lays in this beautiful sack of fluid. And so unfortunately that gives us give. And so our brain rocks inside of that fluid sack when we stop moving. And that's how you can get a concussion without a hit to your head. And then there's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the so even studies of just small little knocks to the head has been adding up and can give some sort of um, concussion type symptoms or issues. Yeah, so there's different studies that are going on all the time, but 
Basically, we know that subconcussive hits over time can have a big impact on your quality of life. And so basically, it's like these little hits are layering small deficits, little by little. And then over time, you have that quote unquote, bottom fell out of the bag concussion. My trunk hit me on the head. It wasn't even that big of a deal. I don't know why I'm still struggling three months later, right? And then you start to tease through their history and they've had four or five big concussions and then they played football as a linebacker for 10 years or whatever it is. And so you you start to layer these deficits on top of each other. They've also done some studies where they did baseline testing preseason and then they looked at contact athletes and then they did repeat testing after the season and with no diagnosed concussion, they found a decrease in some of the different skills that they were looking for. So we know that repetitive hits, even if they don't provoke all those symptoms, can be a big deal. But again, this is a dangerous area because we really don't know enough. CTE, for instance, is a huge topic. Everybody, it's flashy, it's scary, it's it's all the things that the news loves, right? But we really don't know anything about it at the end of the day. And so you don't want to live in fear and being healthy and active is more important than living in fear of subconcussive hits. It's just make good decisions and come out of the game when you have symptoms kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then that kind of will maybe lead us into the next topic we can talk about is what are the, I know it's, it's very different. It's gonna be different for everyone, but in general, could we do maybe like some common ones you'd see in kind of the, like right away and then kind of uh, maybe a couple weeks down the road and so on, um, just different signs and symptoms of a concussion. Yeah, so right away, the easy ones, I get hit, let's say I'm a basketball player and I get an elbow to the temple, right? And I see stars and my ears are buzzing. That's the easiest concussion on earth to diagnose, right? The, the player stumbles a couple times. They go back in the game and you're like, wait, that this is 2020. That doesn't make any sense, right? That's easy. The harder ones are maybe you got hit a couple times in that game. You had a couple rough, you know, you're playing a rough team. You got hit a couple times. And then like two or three days later, you're like, man, I kind of feel like I'm coming down with the flu. You feel a little foggy in the brain. You feel a little nauseous, a little bit off. Those are harder to pick up on because we have to rely on the athlete or the patient to come forward and say there's a problem. And if they don't have the education to know that those could be signs of a concussion, there's your break in the chain, right? They're not gonna, they're not gonna, there's your weak link. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're not gonna come forward. And then in the big injuries, let's say an assault or a motor vehicle accident, something like that, it's very common for the concussion symptoms to not come forward until the orthopedic injuries start to go down. So let's say you're in a big car accident, you need surgery, you're put on pain meds, you're out of work anyway, and then the next couple, three, six months goes by, your orthopedic injuries are better, you're off your pain medication, you're back to work and all of a sudden I've got this foggy brain and I'm not functioning the way I used to. And those can be really tough to pick up on too because they rely on the healthcare provider to ask the right questions and they're often missed in the emergency department. Their job is to put out the biggest fire that's in front of them, right? So if you're bleeding and you've got fractures and wounds and they're worried about your spinal cord, they're not gonna even be thinking about your concussion. And so those are three very distinct different types of people but we see them all the time. And so once you kind of get this, if you're an athlete, um, what is your, I know there's kind of general guidelines and principles out there now um, in the U.S. specifically, uh, what, what's kind of your return to where you can go back to playing sport? Uh, what are the requirements you need and how do you um, recommend progressing in that? So what's really exciting is the return to sport time is actually starting to increase. So we used to have where the majority of athletes return same day. Now that's 
usually illegal in most states, but um, we were we then increased to seven days. We were really excited about that. And now the research is actually showing that 14 to 21 days for the average return to sport time. So that means that we're doing such a better job of educating our athletes on why it's important to be honest. And we're doing a better job as healthcare providers of recognizing these deficits and doing the right thing by the, by the athlete or the patient. You cannot return to sport until you can return to learn. So there are very well established return to learn guidelines that you have to follow. If you can't sit in a classroom all day, what makes you think you should be getting hit in the head out on the field, right? And so if you haven't returned to learn 100%, then you should not return to sport. And then once you go into the return to sport process, there's a lot of guidelines. So you could go to the Berlin and then in two years, there'll be another set of guidelines. They've eliminated the no activity phase. So it used to be you stayed in a dark room, cocoon therapy, until you were symptom free. They did long-term studies and they found that that actually increased the time it took to get better and increased suicide risk in teenagers. So whoops, we don't wanna do that, right? Mm. So now it's only cocoon therapy for about 48 hours or so, and then it's paced, pulsed, modulated activity, symptom guided. You do things that don't increase your symptoms more than a two to three out of 10. So if you wake up with a five out of 10 headache, you're allowed to do your activities in 20 minute increments or whatever it is, wherever stage you're at. If your headache goes up to a seven, that's it. That's the most you're allowed to do. So it's that increase of two out of 10 that's what's really important now. Hmm, interesting. And I guess we can kind of talk a little bit um what about, uh, is, is there like a general progression for like the exercise or is it just literally kind of that uh, a little bit by little bit, uh, if you as much as you can kind of do um, type or is it more staged as I know when uh, the, at least in Illinois, that's kind of the athletic training model was more staged as long as you weren't yeah. getting symptoms. It's staged. So it, it's, um, there's the different stages. So the first stage is, is no activity, but again, yep. that only lasts two days and then it's light aerobic activity. So yep, yep. like a two to three out of 10 and maybe a little dynamic warm up. maybe some knees to chest, maybe some walking lunges, maybe not if you've got some vestibular issues. If they can do that with no change in symptoms over 24 hours, they go to the next phase. You would add body weight exercises. You would add um, a little bit of an increase in your cardio. And so it goes down until you get to, um, we're doing six phases. Some places are doing five. It just kind of depends. You could go off the Berlin guidelines if you wanted. And so then the last stage is returning back to sport. So first you would go to sports skills and drills. Then you would go to practice, no contact. Then you would go to scrimmaging. And then you would go back to your game. And depending on how long it's been. Now, if it's only been three weeks, you can move through this pretty fast. If you have been dealing with your concussion for six months and you are wildly deconditioned, it should never be in your expectation that you're going to progress through a return to sport protocol in a week. So the way I relate that to my patients is if you had torn your ACL and you were not able to do anything for six weeks, we're not gonna just throw you back on the field in week seven, right? We're gonna slowly progress stage-wise and build your motor control and your balance and your strength, and then you'll progress into sports-related activities, and then you go back to sport at the very end, usually around a year. Some places are trying to push it earlier, but anyway, that's ACL, so who cares? Uh, I guess maybe we can talk about kind of the importance of taking these taking these seriously because I know like a lot of times, um, especially with people that I worked with as well, you know, it's I want to play this big game and it's you know that's really important and sports are really important. But um, just some just some things that uh, you know bring to mind and if you have any others, just maybe a couple of three things we could talk about is post concussion post concussion syndrome, second impact, and then CTE. 
are three, I guess, kind of ones that bring to mind for me. And then, like I said, if you have any other big reasons of, you know, obviously why to take these seriously, um, we can talk about those as well. Yeah, so first and foremost, you only get one brain, and you need your brain to do everything that you do all day long in your life, right? So you really have to do a risk versus reward. When I worked in professional sports, you might make a very different decision, an educated decision, risks versus rewards. If you're a 16-year-old who has no chance of going to school on a scholarship, and you're a good student, why would you take that risk that you might take if your $10 million contract relied on you playing in that game, right? In a perfect world, money would never play a factor. In a perfect world, everybody would be 100%. But if you've ever worked in that world, you know that there are realities that you have to work within. Um, Second impact syndrome is when you have a second impact in that usually a very short amount of time, same game, happens very rarely now in the US because we are doing such a better job. In fact, now when a kid dies from second impact syndrome, it is national news, it's a huge deal. That means it's happening less often and we're doing a good job. You get a rapid swelling in your brain and you die from that rapid swelling. There's nothing that they can do to to stop that from happening. So second impact syndrome, we're gonna pretend isn't even on the table because if you get signs of a concussion, you're gonna come out of the game, you're gonna be smart. It's better to miss a week than it is to miss a season, right? That's the saying. So we, we, we pretend that doesn't even exist. Um, Post-concussion syndrome is actually a very controversial term now because they did studies and they found that the psychosocial impact, both for doctor and patient, of the term post-concussion syndrome was actually a negative connotation. So there's more movement towards, do you have a vestibular ocular concussion, an eye, inner ear concussion? Do you have a cervicogenic concussion? Is it because of your neck? Do you have an exercise intolerance or do you have a mood regulation? Which I don't actually know how those two are separate, but whatever. Um, and so it's, it's more, can we group and understand where your symptoms are coming from? And then can we target treatment to that area versus slapping someone with a term, that's like slapping someone with fibromyalgia and doing nothing else to figure out what's wrong with them, right? That's sort of the answer, learn to deal with it and move on with your life. And we don't want people doing that for concussion because there's always an answer and there's always treatment that you can do. Hmm. The, The last one is CTE. Like I said, we really don't know. The big study everybody talks about is that um, study of the 70 brains where like 69 of them had CTE or something like that. The the problem with that study is it's amazing research and the people at the BU Brain Bank and the VA are doing phenomenal work and we would never say anything negative about them. But when you look at a study like that, it's very easy to sensationalize because all of the people studied had suspected CTE All of them, their families donated their brains or the patient themselves donated their brains before they died, and most of them died from suicide. And so you're looking at this, if I did a study of only people with, I don't know, uh, leukemia, and I'm looking for leukemia, and people who've already been diagnosed with leukemia, I'm going to have this huge incidence rate, right? And so we need healthy brains. So I've pledged my brain to the BU Brain Bank. Ideally, they don't get it for a long time, but God forbid they could have it now, you know? Um, And maybe we can get our moms and our grandmas to donate their brains because we need healthy brains and we need female brains um, because all the research is done on this minuscule population and then we try to extrapolate it out to everybody and we're saying peewee football players are going to end up with CTE when that is the most asinine thing that you could ever even think of, right? There's absolutely no research to demonstrate that. Um, should a little seven-year-old who can't even hold their helmet on their head and they got a weak neck be playing contact football? Probably not, right? Mm-hmm. But is it a direct correlation to CTE? Also probably not. Yeah. And then I guess so instead of uh, calling it post-concussion syndrome and looking at the uh, kind of different effects of it, 
um, what what uh, how do they kind of differ between the two and what do they do for um, the different um, I guess diagnosis to try and help that um, you mean for like the different like vestibular ocular post-concussion yep, yep. So basically, the way you would label someone's concussion is what do you think their primary driver is? By the time someone's three months out, they're going to have a mood issue. They're going to have exercise intolerance, and they're going to have whatever their primary driver was. So you could call them all mixed if you wanted, but really, when you get down to it and you do your evaluation, you're going to find, okay, the majority of this person's symptoms are from their neck. They have neck pain, causing headaches. They have what's called cervicogenic dizziness. When they turn their head, they have dizziness but not because of their inner ears. It's because of the reflex that we have um, that humans don't rely on very much, but when it's impacted is a big deal between our cervical spine and our inner ear system and our balance. Um, so that would be someone who is a, who is a neck classified patient. Vestibulocular is what I specialize in. So that's a patient whose primary driver is that they have eye strain and fatigue. Their eyes don't move properly. They have what's called ocular motor control deficits. Their eyes skip around. They can't hold on a target. They have what's called a convergence insufficiency, which happens in 50% of all people with concussions. And it actually is what limits your eyes from working together for close work. So they'll get blurring of their vision when they're reading. They'll get double vision sometimes when it's bad. They'll have fatigue. They'll have dizziness when they go near to far. I look at my computer, I look at my teacher and back and I get dizziness with that. Um, vestibular system is dizziness and balance related to our inner ears and how that correlates with our other spinal reflexes. Mood and anxiety, so we know that people who have a pre-existing condition of anxiety before their concussion will get better more slowly. Um, and then there's this whole exercise intolerance group, which is really moving towards this term dysautonomia, which is your nervous system is no longer regulating itself. So essentially you do all these exams and you as a therapist have to decide what do I think is their primary driver, but then I don't put on blinders to everything else wrong with this patient. I still have to address the exercise intolerance, even if it's a secondary problem. Okay. And then what are some sort of um, like treatment options you do to help fix those issues? Yeah, so um, we start, our, the baseline of my treatment protocols is primitive reflex integration. So primitive reflexes are those um, innate patterns that we have as babies that let us start to move when we're still mushy. So um, if you've ever seen a baby and you put your finger in their hand, they automatically grab onto it. That's the moral reflex. They turn their head and they do that cute little fencer pose, which lets them start to generate momentum to roll over. And so what we found is that these reflexes will actually reemerge after a head injury, and it leads to problems with reading, writing, they'll actually have changes in their handwriting or inconsistent handwriting. They'll have fidgeting behavior that they didn't have before, clothing sensitivities, mood regulation problems, basically all the things that are concussion. So we integrate those reflexes with exercises, things as easy as a Superman, but with your head down instead of being allowed to pick your head up because that fights that TLR, tonic labyrinthine reflex. And then we progress into vision therapy. So that would be ocular motor control. So doing different um, reading exercises where you have to move your eyes between different targets, tracking objects. And then you would progress to vestibular. So you would add in head turn exercises and vergences, which is your eyes working together for close work. And then you kick them out. So there's lots of different exercises. You might have seen like a Brock string, which is a string with beads on it. And the patient has to focus on different beads as they move their eyes back and forth. And that would be training vergences, which correlates to sports because that's depth perception, um, reaction time, it's tracking, it's everything that you need to be able to perform at a high level or simply read in school. Mm. 
And then you said what you specialize in and then what all these treatments for are mainly the kind of the person that will um, kind of lose that or get a little bit dizzy when kind of looking and searching around. Um, so that's kind of the symptoms that they would um, have. Yeah, so they'll have trouble concentrating in school. They'll have issues with reading, eye strain on the computer, fatigue at the end of the workday. They'll have the same grades but have to work harder to get them because it's harder to get that information into their brain. They'll have what's called oscillopsia, which is blurry vision with head movement. So a patient will describe functionally, I'm walking down the aisle in the grocery store and I turn my head and I realize I have to turn my head twice to see what that was because I didn't quite perceive it. Maybe they're more motion intolerant. I get sick in the car all the time now. Um, they'll see that they're very motion phobic. So they'll come in and they've learned not to turn their head very much. So they turn on block or their whole body at once. You'll see that loss of freedom of movement because their brain is conditioning them to, to suppress the things that cause them to have symptoms. Okay. And then is is one more common than the other of the two kind of you brought up there was the one that you specialize in than more of the um, the other one you're talking about? <laughs> so um, I haven't looked at the most recent incidence rates. I'm very skewed because I get referrals specifically for what I specialize in. So all of my patients will have eye, inner ear problems plus whatever else they're dealing with. Um, vision and vestibular, it really depends on where you are in the country and what your certifications are. Um, some people feel like they are very independent. It is my mission um, with all of my research projects to demonstrate that they are integrated. You can't treat vision as a subset of vestibular and you can't treat vestibular as a subset of vision. They are two separate systems that are essential that they work together for us to function in our environment in any skill that we do. And 80% of all brain function, all neurological pathways, anything that we do, 80% has to do with visual processing. So if your vision doesn't work, nothing your memory is going to be garbage your reading is going to be garbage your organizational skills everything's going to be terrible because your brain's working so hard just to see your environment around you hmm, interesting so you kind of mentioned a little bit about treating these issues early doesn't have to you know mean the end of your career so a lot of people get mm -hmm. and i think that's a big reason too why a lot of athletes don't want to come out because they think oh this is you know i don't want to stop playing and you know maybe bring this uh, bring this up and working on it is going to get you to play longer than if you try to hide it. So maybe can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I mean, that's a great point just right there. If we fix these deficits, you will play better than you would have if you didn't fix these deficits. Your career will be longer. We know that athletes who have a concussion have three times greater risk of having another concussion in the same season. We know that athletes who have a concussion have a 50% greater risk of having a lower extremity injury in the same season. So we know that if you don't know where you are in space and your brain isn't communicating with your body, you're more likely to tear an ACL. The difference is an athlete will sit out all day long with a torn ACL, right? It's an objective thing that they understand. I mean, they'll complain and bitch about it, to be perfectly honest. But mm -hmm. um, they'll, they'll, they'll say, okay, I understand, doc. No problem. I get it. I get it. Okay, right? But with a concussion, it's a disease that you can't see, and it still has varying levels of, of the severity that we take it, right? So if a guy feels, especially males, um, they feel like it's a sign of weakness that they're coming forward, then they're going to be less likely to take it seriously. If you continue to have concussions and it continues to take longer and longer to get better after each one, you will end up having a premature ending to your season, or you will end up with that risk of the CTE, Parkinson's, MS, Alzheimer's. These are all the long-term things that you're looking down the barrel at if you don't do what's right by your body early on. 
And then you kind of talked about that there are some different types of specialized treatment nowadays for the retired athlete and the student athletes. Um, Mm -hmm. Is there anything you talk about on that? Yeah. So, I mean, everybody can qualify for the same. It depends on what your deficits are. So if you're an athlete who's struggling getting back into physical activity, so what will happen there is they'll become irritable with exercise. They'll feel short of breath, disproportionate to the amount of exercise they're doing. They'll actually feel their heart having palpitations and racing, right? So now you're trying to perform at your sport or you're a weekend warrior who wants to ride their mountain bike and you can't perform at that same level. If that's the problem for you, then we do what's called the Buffalo Concussion Treadmill Test and we identify when your body starts to demonstrate that dysregularity with your heart rate and your blood flow and the the, um, barrel reflex, which increases the blood flow to your brain and things like that. So if that's your problem, we can address that. If you're struggling in school, but you're still trying to participate in your sport or you're struggling at work and you still wanna be a weekend warrior, then we've gotta address the vision problems and the inner ear problems. So it's the same type of treatment, whether you are an athlete or you're a 60 year old mom who wants to hang out with her grandkids, right? It's just how far do we take you? Grandma probably doesn't need to go to the 100% mark but the athlete needs to go to jumping on a trampoline and and looking at vision targets at the same time, right? So it's the same treatment, it's just where do you stop? An athlete, we can go all the way. We can have you hitting a ball with a bat with letters on it and having to call out letters as you hit it. So it's the same treatment, it's the same human, it's the same problems, it's just how far do they have to go? Mm, And so that treadmill test will kind of determine where you're at at the moment and then you do all these other exercises to try to then increase upon that? Yeah. So let's say you have dysautonomia. Let's say your nervous system has been disrupted because of your head injury. So you come in and you tell me, I'm having hot and cold intolerances. When I exercise, I get this weird smelling sweat or I start sweating sooner than I used to. I feel shortness of breath. So I say, okay, I know what that sounds like. So I put you on the treadmill and what we do is we take your resting heart rate and then you walk based on your height. So if you're my height, you walk at 3.2 miles per hour. And it's basically a modified bulky treadmill test. So every minute we increase the the incline. So you never have to go faster, you never have to run. So it's safe for people with concussions. And we increase the incline and we take your rating of perceived exertion, your heart rate, and then any symptoms that you have. And then there's cutoff scores. So let's say your heart rate plateaus. So these guys are all athletes listening to this podcast. So you all know as your workload increases, your heart rate should increase, right? And when you have dysautonomia, you'll actually find that the heart rate starts to decrease or it starts to plateau and your level of effort is going up, but your heart rate is no longer responding. Or maybe you're at a nine out of 10 effort. That means that your heart rate should be at 90% of your expected max, but your heart rate's 40 beats per minute slower than it should be. That's a mismatch in your nervous system. And so then all you do is you take their heart rate right before their symptoms either increased or they maxed out the test. You take 80% of that heart rate and they do that every single day for 10 minutes or 20 minutes, depending on where they're at in the protocol. They stabilize their heart rate there and then you increase by five to 10 beats per minute every time they can make it about three days, no symptoms. So it's just a stepwise progression. You follow the protocol and even the people who've had to start at 80 beats per minute, so their resting heart rate might be 80 beats per minute. We do the test, they get to 100. Your exercise heart rate is your resting heart rate. What the heck are we gonna do with you? Okay, they end up on a recumbent bike or in a pool. And then they slowly increase and all of those people get better. So some people start just a little below their expected heart rate max. Some people start down in a recumbent bike. 
and you follow the exact same protocol and they get better and they return back to their activities. Hmm. And, and just, it sounds like it's very similar to the point you're making earlier. It's, I mean, rehabbing the brain is very similar to rehabbing the, you know, any other injury you may have. It's just a kind of that progressing it. And um, is there anything, I guess, specifically you can kind of, you try to help people understand, I mean, other than what we've already talked to of, you know, like, like, as you were saying, that it's not something you can visually see or not like something that is physically actually limit, limiting you sometimes. Like, you can maybe still sort of perform. Whereas if you, like, you literally can't walk on your ankle or you literally can't go with your knee, that's a little bit different. Right. I mean, it's, there's a lot of answers to that question. So, mm. so for my patient population who tend to be a little bit further out and a little bit worse off than the average sports concussion, um, it's, acknowledging and validating their symptoms and sometimes it's apologizing for the lack of healthcare that they have received or the mistakes that they have been the victims of and it's telling them that it doesn't matter i don't care if you're 15 years out or you're three weeks out we can fix these problems we have answers to these things it's encouraging them that they are not crazy if a patient tells you often they won't be forthcoming if i have to ask do words go in and out of focus when you're reading Oh, you know what? Yeah, I just thought I was losing my mind. Did your handwriting look different than it used to? Yeah, actually, my hand cramps more. And now that you mention it, I write on a slant and I never used to. I thought I was just getting lazy, right? So we naturally try to come up with some other excuse in our mind for why we feel the way we feel when there's a very objective reason for why that's happened to you and we can fix it. Um, the harder one is the athletes who really feel that pressure of, I have to perform, I have to get back, I'm going to let my team down, I'm going to lose my spot. There's all these social factors and emotional factors. And then it's really, I don't like to say, you're not cleared. I don't like to be the one that says no. I'll send you to the doctor if I really have to for that. <laughs> but I feel like if you educate someone properly and you explain to them, hey, does it make sense that your balance is really bad when you turn your head? but you wanna go play soccer, don't you feel like that might be a problem? Or if you educate them, hey, you've had these two injuries in a row and, it's, and you're really feeling crummy and you're struggling in school, what do you think would happen if you got hit in the head again? And they'll start to actually come to it all on their own. All you have to do is give them the information and let them know it's okay and you're not judging them. They're not being weak by saying, I don't wanna participate. They're saying, I'm gonna take control of my power and I'm gonna make the right choice for me so that my longevity is there and my brain isn't melting out of my ears when I turn 65 years old, right? Yeah. Um, what, I mean, I guess, yeah, you're a little bit more longer term too, but still, you, you might still have sometimes when you have coaches or parents that are kind of wanting their kid to play or get back into it or even, yeah, kind of along those lines. So is, is there anything different you'd kind of make, put in context to them or is it just kind of that similar, same down the same line? You know, unfortunately, maybe it's your own bias, but you can smell those people walking in the room like who are going to be really resistant. And in that case, I what the relationship I have with my referring physician is I need to be the good cop because I need them to come every week and to work hard and do what I say. So if it's a situation where they are just being ignorant to the world around them, then I just have the doctor be the heavy. Um, if it's a situation where a coach is really laying into an athlete, that's a really unfortunate situation. The athlete wants to do the right thing. The parents want to do the right thing. And the coach is the one punishing the athlete. Now you got to get the athletic director involved. You have to write letters. You have to do all these things with the school system. At the end of the day, the school system doesn't want to get sued. So they tend to do the right thing when it comes down to it. If you push them hard enough. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so it, it, it's easier when, you, when you're dealing with rational human beings who want what they want, but they understand what you're saying. You do very often run into the people who they don't care what you have to say. They're going to do whatever they're going to do. And so sometimes I'll say to them, listen, you're not cleared, but this isn't like when I worked with professional sports and I could monitor everything you did and I was at every practice. I have no idea what you do on the six days that you're not in my office. I'm going to write in my note that you're not cleared. I'm going to uh, cover my own butt and I'm going to really recommend that you do the right thing. This is your kid and your kid's life. You got to do what you got to do, right? So I have that ability to wash my hands a little bit because I can't I can't go to their house every day and monitor what they're doing, you know? Yeah. Um, if, if so, let's, let's say a, a player is still struggling with kind of comprehending this and they go and then they come back with a setback, I guess, is there mm-hmm. some sort of way you kind of deal with, with a, with a setback or, or if I guess they're yeah. just even, um, are kind of going along and they do hit a setback, um, within their normal treatment. If maybe they did go too hard one day, not even not trying to, um, ways you kind of deal with that. I mean, it depends on the person. Um, You could choose to be judgy and say, I told you so, right? You could do that all day long. But if you're dealing with a teenage population, that doesn't go over too well (laughs) usually. Um, I just choose to treat them with kindness because at the end of the day, that person knows that they should have listened and they know that they made the wrong call and they came back, right? It's not like they got re-injured and they doctor hopped and went somewhere else because they didn't want to face the music. So there's really not any point in me criticizing them because I'm not going to get anywhere with that. Now, if we start to get better and we get to that critical point again and they want to make the same decision again, I will definitely use my sarcasm and try to connect with them and say, hey, how did that go for you last time, right? Mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't do it in a confrontational way. I would choose to kind of meet them where they're at. Yeah. Also very often, and that happens all the time, by the way. People do whatever they're going to do and then they come back and they're like, oh, I had no idea. Um, and so also what happens is people have setbacks because people expect their concussion recovery to be a linear progression. And it's not. You're going to start to feel better, so you're going to go to the grocery store. You're going to start to feel better, so you're going to go to practice and watch practice and it's loud. It's a basketball gym. There's a lot of balls bouncing, people yelling, and then you have headaches the next day. These things are going to happen. They are normal. And what you do is you validate how that patient feels. You educate them that it's normal. Usually it's the fear factor that's getting them. Oh my God, I went to that one basketball practice and now I've had headaches for two days and I'm never going to get better and I'm just going to die and like my whole life is over, right? That's human nature. And so you just tell them, hey, this is, I told you from the very beginning, this is not a linear process. This is going to happen. It would be a big deal if you made bad choices four days in a row. You made a questionable choice one day. You did the right thing the next day. We're going to get better in the next couple days, and then we'll pick up where we left off. No big deal. We just move on. And that's typically how I handle it, unless someone needs a heavier hand. Mm -hmm. Is there anything, I guess, special or specific um, that you can kind of look for when saying, like when you've worked with a patient for so long and then uh, an athlete and they're ready to go back that you kind of like build your confidence. Cause I know like with ACLs, people I've talked to, they said, if, if they say, um, you know, I, I don't even remember what leg, you know, is the issue. Is there any, anything you really look at, um, specifically to determine that really helps you Oh, this person's, you know, looking pretty good. And I know it's, I know it's really hard, again, really hard with something in the head, but just, uh, I guess any tips for the athletes or any practitioners working with them? 
Yeah, I mean, you want to make sure they can achieve their 80% of their estimated heart rate max. You want to make sure they can exercise at a high level with no symptoms. Can they do impact, jumping, running, no symptoms? Are they 100% in school? Did you do at least a VOMS, at least the visual exam that's just a screen? Or did you do a more comprehensive vision exam and you found that all their vision deficits had resolved? Is their balance back to normal, specifically with their eyes closed? Because that challenges the vestibular system, right? So I'll hear about people who are going to other clinics and every balance exercise they do is a ball toss or a this or a that, which is great, but you're increasing the visual dependency that this patient with an inner ear problem has. Can they do all of their cognitive activities? Can they do their work full time? And then it becomes a, you do the best that you possibly can. You have an educated discussion with them. You will not know currently, there's no testing to tell us until they have that first hit. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. And a patient that's not scared is easier than a patient who is scared, right? Because if we tense up and we're afraid, we're more likely to have an injury than if we stay nice and loose and athletic and use our normal postural reactions. So you do your repeat baseline testing, you do your VOMS, your King Devic, your SCAP5, you check their balance, you make sure they can exercise, they can jump, run, do school, and then you make the best decision that you possibly can, and you hope for the best, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Anybody there, is, who tells you it's different is lying to themselves. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you have any advice to either uh, parents of younger athletes or younger athletes in general, just in anyone, I guess, when deciding to play a contact sport? Um, that has a risk of concussions or any sport, honestly, but mainly the ones that are probably high risk to stay as safe as possible? I mean, I think that there should be contact limits for football. I think that really young children should be playing flag football and learning skills. Um, I am not anti-football. In fact, football was my favorite sport I ever worked, right? And so um, it's about making the right choices for you. It's about when you start having multiple concussions that have longer impacts, you pull yourself out of that sport and you make the right choice. The long-term implications of the psychosocial factors and the emotional maturity of playing team sports has much more validity than living in fear of getting hit in the head and having a traumatic brain injury. If you're gonna ski, wear a helmet. Ski within your means. If you are a crappy skier, please don't go double black diamonds and then wonder why you hit a tree off the side of the hill, right? And so if you wear a seatbelt when you're in the car, and even if you're just riding your bike down the street, you put a helmet on, right? I just heard about a person who is a big time biker and was riding their, their bike out on the street and they fell off their bike and they fractured their jaw outside on the sidewalk. So, I mean, these things, accidents happen. That's why they're called accidents. Every single time be prepared, make good choices and enjoy yourself. So after I had my traumatic brain injury, I couldn't read. Um, I have long-term memory loss. Thank God my school stuff doesn't, didn't disappear. I don't know what filing cabinet I put that in that it's still there. Don't remember my wedding, but I remember gross anatomy. Um, and so, you know, I, I wanted to get back to skiing and I was talking to my neurologist and he said, at the end of the day, you could slip and fall getting out of the bathtub and that could be it. You could be in a nursing home for the rest of your life. So you have to make choices. I don't mountain bike anymore. I don't snowboard anymore, but I still ski and damn you, I'm going to keep skiing until that's it. It doesn't happen anymore. Right? Mm -hmm. So you just make the choices that are going to be what's really important to you and that are educated decisions and you enjoy yourself because that there's no point in living if you're not enjoying what you're doing. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, and yeah, I like, like you, we've been talking about concussions are very serious, but yeah, you can't, can't live in fear and the health benefits probably outweigh that anyways of being active. 
Um, yeah. Be, being a mushy person who watches TV all day is definitely worse for your cardiovascular system mm-hmm. than playing a little soccer. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so for for a question I like to ask some people, uh, what would you say? Either maybe something that we haven't talked about, if it is, or if it's something you're really passionate about, we can kind of go back to it. But what would you say? one of your, I guess, biggest kind of pet peeves, things that you're always telling people, you know, the opposite, or they come in thinking one way and it's really the other um, about just concussions in general. Is there something that like you just, you're over telling people and you just, you want, you just wish everyone could understand it? I mean, you do not need to have a loss of consciousness to have a concussion. If I could never have to say that again, that would be too soon. Um, You, I do not like when a medical provider just purely doesn't know what they're doing And so they toss it back to the patient. That patient's a psych patient. That makes me more furious than anything else. They probably do have anxiety and depression. They felt like complete garbage for six months. They haven't been able to do their sport. They're they're failing at work or they're failing at school. Of course they have anxiety and depression. What do you think they are, a superhuman? Just because you can't figure it out doesn't mean there's not something objectively wrong with that person and their psych issues are a side effect. So that's my biggest pet peeve is if you don't know what you're doing when you're treating concussions and you don't want to take the time to educate yourself, no problem. Treat ACLs, go do something else, treat balance issues, whatever it is. Just don't tell people that you're a concussion specialist. Don't tell people that you can treat concussions if you haven't done the work to not do any harm. I think the danger as being a healthcare provider in the concussion world is you don't know what you don't know. And the damage of that can be very severe in the world of head injuries and it can lead to a lot of time loss, money issues, things that are very important to people to be able to function on the planet. So, I mean, that's a very serious and sort of negative thing to say, but but it, but it's the truth and it's unfortunate that we see it every single day. I get patients from other places and they were just not treated properly. And I wanna shake those providers and yell at them, but I can't. I have to be nice and say, I'm sure they did their best. <laughs> All right, yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah, that's, I guess, yeah, very important as well. Um, is there is there just uh, just a quick summary, I guess, um, of the main topics um, that, that aren't necessarily grinding your gears or anything, but just the main points you'd want some people to take away from this yeah. episode? So basically, concussions are treatable. You know, 10 years ago was a different world, but today there are plenty of places that do a phenomenal job. I don't know about other countries, but in the U.S., we have got clinics all over the country that do amazing work. So there's no reason nowadays to live with even small deficits, right? If you're not happy with your level of performance or if you're struggling, if you don't get the answer you want from the first person, like I just said, go see somebody else, right? And keep searching until you hear, you you see somebody who hears you. Um, The issues with fatigue and with reading and with trouble at the end of the workday or with struggling in your workouts, those are all things that are fixable. There's no reason to be the walking wounded anymore. Um, We can all get better. It doesn't matter how far out. So let's say you're a a runner who loves listening to no weak links and you're like, whoa, concussion. I had one of those five years ago and I'm still not quite right in the head. You can still get treatment. So there's no time limit. Everybody should get better. Everybody should be enjoying their lives and, and, and living at their maximum potential. Um, and just remember that they have an additive effect unless you treat the deficits that are underneath. So just because you've had one doesn't mean you're automatically going to get a CTE. But if you have one and then two and then three and then four, things are going to start to pile on top of each other, um, but they can be fixed. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Lauren. Awesome information and everything. Really appreciate it. 
Um, if you just want to, if there's anywhere that people could either follow you, contact you, um, just to get some more information about um, concussion. I know you said your website too. So anything along those lines to kind of um, spread the knowledge that you want people to know. Um, uh, if you want to shout those out right now, and then I can put those in the show notes afterwards. Oh, cool. Thanks. So um, I'm on Twitter at LZ for my name, Concussion, at LZ Concussion. And then I'm also on uh, my website, Phoenix, like the bird, phoenixconcussionrecovery.com. And then you can email me through there. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. If you don't know what kind of specialist to look for, I'd be happy to do a Google search for you and, and help you find them. So it's really my mission in life that Athletes take their injuries seriously, and all people, no matter what your athletic level is, get better and go back to their normal their normal level, and I would love to help in any way I can. Perfect. Amazing. Thanks again, Lauren. Thanks for the info and um, all the help yeah. people. Thank you so much for having me.